You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. Today I'm in conversation with author Carrie Callahan, whose new novel is titled Salt the Snow. When we're writing fiction about real people, or really just about any character, you are looking for a moment when their lives change. My guest today is author Carrie Callahan. Her second novel, Salt the Snow, centers on one of the first female war correspondents, a woman named Millie Bennett from San Francisco, who traveled the world covering some of 20th century's most dramatic events. This sweeping novel portrays the early days of Soviet communism in the 1930s through the eyes of a young American journalist. This remarkable character might have been lost to history were it not for Carrie Callahan probing Bennett's correspondence and articles. This is a particularly arresting story of journalism as we navigate the so-called age of misinformation and Russian-U.S. relations in an election year. Callahan is a senior editor with the Washington Independent Review of Books. Joining me from Maryland to discuss her new novel is Carrie Callahan. Carrie, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you, Laurie. It's a delight to be here. Millie Bennett, who is the central character in your novel, was an American journalist from San Francisco. It was a delight to learn about her. How did you learn about her? I came across Millie probably decades ago when I was doing some research on the Spanish Civil War. Millie ends up spending some time in Spain. And her moxie just leapt off the page. And I immediately wanted to know who this woman was. And so I read her posthumously published memoirs and again was captivated by this woman who is this fascinating contradiction of bold and broken all at the same time. Mm. Did you have access to her correspondence and letters or did were you primarily informed about her life and adventure through this memoir that you mentioned? The memoir covers her life before she got to Russia, so I definitely relied on her her correspondence, which fortunately the Hoover Institute in Stanford has in their archives. Um, I couldn't make it to California myself, so I hired a researcher, and through the wonders of the modern internet, you know, she was able to take pictures of hundreds and hundreds of letters and then just send them to me, and it was a it was a real treasure trove. Well, you mentioned that she spent some time in Spain, and that's that was your first introduction to her. Um, but the story, Salt the Snow, your novel, largely centers on Millie's time in the USSR in the 1930s. Can you share what, what drew you to focus on, on that period of Millie's professional life? So like I said, her memoirs covered her life before, which honestly was just as colorful, I think, as what I captured in Russia. She grew up in San Francisco. She started her journalism career there. She chased a man to Hawaii to beg him to marry her and succeeded, but then the marriage ended up in disaster. Then she went to China. And so 
I felt like if somebody wanted to know about that part of Millie's life, which they ought to, it's fascinating that they could read her own words. So I wanted my fiction to begin sort of where her own account of her life left off. That was part of the motivation. The other part was that so much happened to her. And I I mean, when we're writing fiction about real people, or really just about any character, you are looking for a moment when their lives change. And I think Millie did achieve some realizations in Russia that I thought would make for a good story. So her journalism career did not start in Russia. It it actually started prior to that. You mentioned she was in China. Uh, how old was she when she got to Russia, when she had this sort of pivotal moment in her life? She was 34, approximately, maybe 33. She hadn't had her birthday yet. And then, um, you know, she's there for a number of years. So in her mid-30s. Okay, so when she arrives in Moscow. She takes a position with a publication called the Moscow Daily News. And also while, while she's there, she marries a Russian opera singer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what can you tell us about this publication? And um, I'm really interested in how you figured out or how you managed to balance this sort of amazing adventure she was having with the locals and this kind of eccentric marriage that she found herself in and this publication. So let's actually, let's start with the Moscow Daily News. What kind of publication was this? What did you learn about it? This was uh, an, a difficult newspaper to figure out, honestly, because it's something that, at least on the surface, Americans aren't familiar with today. So I had to, to do a little bit of digging into the background. And it turns out it was an English language newspaper funded by the Soviet state in the USSR, well, in Moscow, that was designed to provide news and maybe a little bit of entertainment and even comfort to the many English language workers who were laboring in Moscow at the time because the Soviet Union was, as you said, Laurie, relatively young at that time and communism was young, they were importing a lot of foreign labor. And these people often didn't speak Russian. They weren't necessarily native English speakers, but many of them did speak English. And so this was a vehicle to get news to them and to maybe build community. But because it was funded by the Soviet state, there was an element of propaganda. And that was something that Millie quite clearly struggled with. She wanted to be an optimist and believe in the future, but she also wanted to be a journalist and believe in the truth and tell the truth. And sometimes those trajectories were at odds in in communism at that time. When you were researching this job offer, did you get the impression from reading the correspondence that Millie knew what she was getting into? <laughs> because, I mean, what, what's remarkable about her is that she cared about story. She cared about the, you know, the the quest for getting um, a good, you know, a good narrative together. But then, um, you know, as you described, that there was a bit of propaganda associated with this publication. What was your sense of what did, did she know what she was getting into? Did she did she know what this was about? Yeah. Oh, Millie, I don't think she did. She one of the things I love about her story and that I tried to capture in the fictionalization is that you know, she's so very human and she's constantly making big life choices on her romantic heartbreak. And so in this case, she had returned from China after 
more romantic heartbreak. And she started up an affair in San Francisco with a married man. And after a few months, it became clear that that wasn't going to work out. And she was devastated. And so when she got an offer from a relatively famous journalist at the time, Anna Louise Strong, Millie just jumped on it. And within seven days of getting the letter from Anna Louise saying, hey, I need an experienced journalist. Would you work with me? Millie was on a transatlantic steamer to Germany, which was the way you got to Moscow at that time. So I think she had no idea what she was getting into. She just wanted to get away from her broken heart. Millie is not your typical 1930s uh, young woman. <laughs> I felt that uh, she, what comes across in the novel so well is her her love of work and her love of, well, her love of men. I mean, she's quite yeah. li- libertine in her, her life. When you were writing this novel, how hard was it to balance those two things? Absolutely. It was hard. It's hard to have a lot of romantic attachments that, you know, they were passionate to her, but if the reader doesn't have enough time to get to know some of the men that she is attached to, then it doesn't make a connection for the reader. And so I did end up cutting out, I think, two of her lovers from an earlier draft because it was just too complicated. And I think um, readers would have lost a little bit of sympathy for her. And then, you know, balancing it, as you asked, with the the work that she did, I don't think in her mind she saw any conflict. So that actually didn't come up as a tension for me. It was more the emotional connections. She spent roughly three years in Russia. Is that is the timeline that you set forth um, kind of consistent with, with her time there? Yeah, well, just in general, almost everything I put in the novel is true. Uh, as compared to my first novel, which was about a 17th century Dutch woman about whom we know very little. This one, I just had an abundance of information. And so, you know, what's what's true, right? I guess that's a metaphysical question that we can't really answer, but almost every plot detail is connected to the historical record. When I was reading about Moscow at this time, you really give us a a strong impression of what communal living was like. Um, And for a time, Millie was with her husband in this kind of communal apartment, and then she she had uh, other more privileged places to live within Moscow. How did you come to find the living arrangements detailed in the notes? Because I, I think I think there's just such a fascination about how um, people were living at that time. What what did you discover in your research? Yeah, again. So I I will confess, I didn't really know anything about Moscow in the 1930s going into this. And so I had a lot of research to do myself, but I was likewise fascinated to find what an interesting time in history this was, because like I said, communism was new, relatively new. I mean, the Russian Revolution was 1917, but after over a decade of turmoil and then some really difficult economic times in the late 1920s, the economy in Moscow was starting to improve. And then you also, in addition to that, had, because of the economic turmoil in the countryside, literally millions of people flooding the city. And so there was a, the result was a massive housing shortage. And that was part of the reason why Millie was constantly bouncing from place to place. And again, like with the boyfriends, I had to cut out some of the houses or the, the rooms that she lived in because it was a lot for the reader to take care of. But 
life at that time was very transient and crowded. The Soviet government didn't want people living on the streets. That was an embarrassment. They were very concerned about their international image. And so the result was you just had people crammed into apartments like Sardines, many apartments that were as like the one that Millie's husband lives in were formerly owned by one family and then subdivided and subdivided and subdivided to host, you know, in some cases, a dozen people. There aren't many individuals who would be able to adapt to that environment. And I think that's what makes Millie's character and her personality so interesting to read about because it just felt to me that she was completely comfortable with whatever life threw at her. But, you know, at the same time, she was doing this work with the Moscow Daily News. And what you have also informed the reader is that she seemed to have a real desire to write her own stories, separate and distinct from any journalism position that she might have formally held. What what did you find in her correspondence about what, what she wanted to write, her, her own passions? She had ambition. And I think she was a little maybe resentful is too strong a word, but maybe sad that a lot of the other the foreign correspondents who worked for international wire agencies were getting both more creative latitude and more prestige for writing the big flashy feature stories that they were able to write. And I think, yeah, we can say she resented that a little bit, partly because she thought they weren't being truthful and that they weren't taking the time to really get to know Moscow, but that they disdained her for having sort of quote unquote gone native. And so she was driven, I think, creatively to try to thread that needle to say, well, this is how it looks like from the inside, but in a way that is truthful that maybe she couldn't get past the censors. And she also wanted to incorporate humor. She was a really funny lady. Her letters are filled with wry remarks and, um, and little asides, mostly pretty acerbic. And she, I think, enjoyed incorporating some of that humor into her stories. And some of, you know, she kept some of her news clips. So I was able to read a couple of those stories and then others uh, found, I think on the internet, I found one. As you read her stories and um, her letters and correspondence, how how would you rank her as as a writer? I mean, was she, her life was full of adventure. She was fully on board with all of this. But how would you rank her as a journalist, just in terms of her her talent and her insightfulness? So style evolves, right? Um, I think many of us reading journalists from the 1930s would find their style to feel a little antiquated in some ways. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on journalism of that time, but to my ear, her writing sounds very similar. It's a little arch. Uh, it can be a little showy in ways that maybe we wouldn't consider good writing today. But I found it very enjoyable, and particularly her letters. She was able to capture gorgeous scenes and an emotion in a subtle way that was um, that was very moving. And she also, she deployed metaphors. And one that comes to mind is, as she said, I hate having unanswered letters. It's like a cherry stone under your tea saucer. <laughs> you know, she just came up with these things yeah. uh, that were so colorful and, and evocative. I loved that. I think you, you mentioned something really important here. She 
evolved, her style evolved, her her point of view evolved, and you have this wonderful reference, um, I think, in the, in the second half of the book. And this time she was going to write her own story, the story of her life in Moscow and her efforts to help her husband. Um, I guess, was there one thing in particular about her time in Moscow that changed or altered her views on the promise of Soviet socialism. And I ask that because you mentioned that there was just a tremendous amount of curiosity with respect to how Soviet socialism was going to evolve. Was it the great new promise or was it going to be a failed project? And Millie was there, as you said, she'd gone native, she had a husband. And there were, I don't want to give away the plot here, I want readers to discover how this unfolds, but in your mind, was there one or were there one or two things that really changed her perspective? I guess it's kind of both. <laughs> there was there was one thing, and yet there were many things, and and yet in some ways she, uh, you know, I'm not sure she would say she changed her mind. She did a little bit, but she always retained optimism, and she called herself a socialist. She never joined the Communist Party, but she called herself a socialist for the rest of her life. Hmm. And so. I think the, I mean, the, the biggest thing, the biggest spark is where the, the novel starts, which is when her husband, Senya, is arrested by the secret police. And that was a huge blow to her. She didn't understand why. As you said, he was in the opera. He had nothing to do with politics. And she was really shocked by that. And I think that began a journey of introspection and observation that made her realize some things. When you were writing this novel, um, how did you decide to structure this? I always like to ask about the structure of a novel because we go back and forth. In the beginning, in the early chapters, it's kind of 1931 and 1934. So we get this back and forth image of um, her journey to Russia and then what was happening and unfolding in Russia. I knew I wanted the novel to start when Senya gets arrested. I thought that's such an important scene, hopefully a way to draw the reader in um, and an exciting scene to write. And so then once I was starting there, I realized, well, I also ought to fill in some of the background, but I wanted to do it in a way that you know, hopefully it doesn't feel like just a backstory dump. And so I was trying to create a little bit of a, a puzzle unfolding where each flashback chapter answers a question from the previous 1934 sort of present story time chapter. And that structure was also partly just to gratify myself and that like, well, this is a challenge. Let's see if I can do it. <laughs> and sometimes as writers, that's, that's the only reason is, you know, we're trying something out just to see if we can make it work. Where did Millie end up after Russia? What, what can you tell us about her life after her dramatic experiences in Russia. You mean like after the novel ends, kind of where does she go or? Well, what we can, I think what we can say about the novel is that um, while it's centered on US, the USSR in, in Russia, she does spend some time in Spain. That's right. And I don't want to get too deep into that. Again, we'll let the reader kind of take that journey through the story. But what, what did you learn about her personally after, after her time in Spain? So she um, ends up going back to the United States and she spends the rest of her life in the United States, I believe in the San Francisco, no, actually, I'm sorry, in the Los Angeles area is where she returned. And she, she remarries, well, I don't want to spill too much, but she has, she has another relationship. 
Of course she does. <laughs> of course she does, because that's the story of her life. Is And so she ends up following that spouse around a little bit. Um, but I think they mostly stayed in California. But she continued to work as a journalist. That is not clear to me, to be honest. Okay. I'm not sure that she did. She came back and she, this so, you know, this was during the depression. It was hard to get work when immediately upon her return. And she spent some time writing what she had hoped would be a novel of her time in Russia. And she contacted Anna Louise Strong, the woman who first got her that job in Moscow. And I have some of those letters where Millie is asking Anna Louise to get her an in with some publishers that Millie can publish her novel. And that never, it didn't pan out. It's interesting, by the way, to read those letters to Anna Louise because Millie had a very conflicted relationship with that woman. She was grateful to her for her help, but she really didn't like her. <laughs> so, Oh, that's interesting. I think it must have been a hard time for Millie to go begging to her for favors, but she did it because she really wanted to get that novel published. And that's another reason why this, again, was the story I wanted to write, because I felt like I could maybe do Millie a favor, you know, in what, so in whatever afterlife, maybe she can look back and think, well, I didn't get a chance to write the novel about my time in Russia, but somebody else did it for me. And hopefully she'll appreciate it. Readers might never have been able to have an introduction to this early um, female journalist, Millie Bennett, had you not gone probing through letters and correspondence and spun gold in this amazing <laughs> novel. So what you just said is that she wanted to write stories on her own terms. One of the things that you do in your life is that you work for, um, you work with Washington Independent Review of Books as a senior editor. So as you were looking to get this book into the marketplace, how did you kind of navigate the path to publication? I was pretty lucky with this book, to be honest, in that I already had a relationship with the publisher of my previous book. And so when my agent and I were thinking about what to write next, um, we thought this Millie's story would make a good story, particularly because she is one of the first female war correspondents to report from under fire. That's something that I think, for whatever reason, history has usually given to people like Martha Gellhorn. But there's an argument to be made that Millie was there first. But in any case, so we thought, well, that would be part of the hook that she was a trailblazing female journalist and um, the market is interested in, as you said, Lori, the stories of women that history have sort of forgotten. And since I had already published a similar story with this publisher, they were interested in this and we didn't have to do too much to convince them. But, you know, thinking about how the marketplace views books from the perspective of the work I do with the Washington Independent, it uh, it is tough to figure out how any book fits in because hopefully each book is unique and it has something unlike any other novel out there on the shelves. And yet publishers are always wanting to say, well, if A, then B, which uh, can make it hard. I love the uh, the values that um, Washington Independent Review of Books is set up because you're not reviewing necessarily the same 10 or 15 books that get reviewed everywhere else. Yeah. I get a chance to see something a little different. When, As an editor, how do you decide what goes into the publication? Uh, I just want to say I'm so gratified to hear you say that. That is also one of my favorite things about The Independent, that we're not just reviewing the expensive big five publishers books that, as you say, if you go to the New York Times or Washington Post, you can get those reviews. We don't need to pile onto that. 
my role there is mostly to look at the the books that our managing editor or editor-in-chief has already selected for review. So she primarily does that first call, but I then help match those books to reviewers. So it is an essential part of getting a review published that we actually find a home for each book. And I mean, I'll confess, of course, my tastes are idiosyncratic. I love to find books written by women, written by people of color, historical fiction, anything like that. I love to find reviewers for those so those books can hopefully find somebody who will rave about them and get them some love. Uh, Carrie, can you tell us, uh, can you share anything about what you're working on now? I am always writing historical fiction. That's, I think, probably I've got enough projects in that vein to keep me occupied for the rest of my life. So it's definitely historical fiction. As I said at the beginning, I, I have an interest and maybe even obsession with the Spanish Civil War. Hmm. And so this next project, I hope, what I hope will be a book is set in the Spanish Civil War and set in mostly in Granada. And I want to remind listeners that my guest today is author Carrie Callahan. Her second novel is a work of historical fiction. It's titled Salt the Snow. And Carrie, I want to thank you for joining Real Fiction today. It has just been so wonderful to talk about this story that you've written. At a dramatic time in history, we we get to go back into the early days of Russia and look at journalism at a time when I, I mentioned earlier, we're kind of in this age of misinformation and, a, and Russian-U.S. relations have frequently been strained, but you just take us into this world. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Lori. It's so kind and generous of you to say that. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.